0: You are listening to Beyond Sets and Reps, where we provide the performance edge. I'm your host, Pat Ivey.
1: And I'm your co-host, Mackenzie.
0: And thanks for tuning in to another episode. Culture of accountability is when a lot of your athletes are doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're supposed to be doing how they're supposed to be doing it. Competence. Do your athletes know what they're supposed to be doing so that they can do what they're supposed to be doing? Are they committed? Will they see it from the start to the finish? Will they complete the task? Are they consistent? Dr. Ty is CEO of the O'Shea Group, an educational consultancy company that provides research to practice solutions at the intersection of race, leadership, and space, also known as athletics. He also is an associate professor of educational leadership and policy analysis at the University of Missouri, a sought after international speaker, thought leader and consultant. He has offered guest commentary for major national networks, including Fox News, the recipient of an NCAA grant to study black male athletes and author of the award winning book Border Crossing Brothers. Black Males Navigating Race, Place, and Complex Space. Dr. Douglas scholarship has appeared in outlets such as Teachers, College Record, and the Urban Review. He has multiple books, articles, and many other contributions. He has written a book called Campus Uprisings, How Student Activists and Collegiate Leaders Resist Racism and Create Hope with drawing upon uprisings on college campuses. A former soccer player in Bermuda and at the collegiate level, Douglas' work in athletics includes a study of black male student-athletes at Mizzou, a study and documentary on collegiate and professional athletes in South Africa, and ongoing work on the trajectories and transitions of former professional basketball players. Dr. Douglas is a community leader, lay pastor, and international speaker, and he is happily married with two sons. And without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Ty Douglas.
2: Hey, what's going on, good people? Good to be on. Dr. P.I., what's going on, man? Sister Mac, how you doing?
1: (laughs) Hello, hello. Welcome to the show.
0: Welcome to the show. Dr. Ty, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
2: Well, first, thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Um, I am, you know, to put it in maybe uh, three words, I'm a border crossing brother, born and raised in Bermuda. Uh, my, uh, my biological father actually is from St. Louis. Uh, and so I was born and raised in, in an island with, uh, of 21 square miles, you know, surrounded by water um, and, and raised in a sport context, raised in a, a strong village, a family uh, contacts that has nurtured me. Uh, but now in this season of my life, it's ironic that I'm now back in the state uh, where my, my paternal father rests in the grave and, and his, you know, my ancestors are, are, are from this state. And I find myself now here at a very critical time in our world, being able to do some important work, uh, not just here in Missouri and at the University of Missouri, but uh, also just nationally and internationally drawing on that background that obviously uh, includes Bermuda, uh, includes you know my time here, but also transcends that to many experiences within the context of, of education, uh, within the context of community engagement, and ultimately seeking to try to do the best I can to empower and inspire others.
1: I have a question for you, Dr. Tai, to... Um kind of take us into this is a deep topic. And obviously, you, you talked about the times of today. Um, so you have, in case people, it was in the bio, but O'Shea Group is an educational consultancy company to provide solutions in the space of race and leadership and, and specifically you work in athletics. Can you break that down a little bit for our listeners and kind of give them an idea, what do you actually do? You know, do you go into a classroom setting and teach people about how the intersection of athletics and race and leadership play? Do you talk to athletes? Do you talk to administrators? You know, what what does that look like so people kinda have an idea of what it is you do on the day to day basis?
2: Sure. So uh it's it's important to know that OSHA actually stands for optimizing systems of healing through education and access. So I think that can Sort of give you a bit more context. It's actually my middle name, uh, and um, it is uh, the foundation for the work that uh, we do uh, to help organizations to be able to uh, see often what's in front of their eyes in the worlds so of George Orwell. Um, but to but you know that that actually takes constant effort. Orwell says right. So in order to to see certain things, it can be difficult, and so uh, I think it's necessary to have individuals who are trained uh, in these areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, sport. Leadership, uh, identity development, etc., to be able to help uh, uh, leaders and organizations to be able to see that which may be obvious to others, but may be difficult for them to see. Uh, and so that includes certainly uh, engaging in talks. I, I, you know, I've I, I've spoken nationally and internationally. I've done a lot of work um, with various organizations, professional and collegiate. Uh, I've done studies of. Uh, student athletes across various contexts, nationally and internationally, as well as for professional athletes, um, for organizations that have studied the transitions of athletes and helping them to understand how to better support their athletes uh, during and after uh, they retire, etc. And so that looks like talks, but it also looks like workshops. It also looks like consultancy efforts uh, where we have done audits, if, if you will, of particular athletic spaces uh, to help people to see that which they often may miss. And let me give you an example of that. So. I walked into a particular uh, athletic building once and uh, there were many folks who had gone there before me, you know, daily they engaged in the space. But when I went in, having come from Bermuda, I started with my story earlier telling that Bermuda is 21 square miles, right? So it's a small space. I, and I also study space, like where you come from uh, and, and the spaces that you occupy matter. And so when I walked into this particular space, I saw an academic All-American board that had absolutely no pictures of any black or brown people on it. And to me, it was striking because that particular academic All-American board was juxtaposed across the hallway to images of black athletes making it to the professional leagues. And so for me, as an educator first, uh, you know, who studies space, uh, I'm thinking about the reality that young people, uh, in particular students and athletes of color, walk across that board every single day. And the board suggests that there is one space or one uh, particular positionality that they can get to, which is maybe to the league. <laughs> and then the other board suggests that they uh, may not be able to get to that one. And so for me, it was uh, 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 that was dangerous curriculum because it reifies stereotypes that suggest what certain people can and can't do. And so when I think about, again, the O'Shea group, optimizing systems of healing through education and access, I understand that, um, that individuals and institutions have to be able to have the accountability, the support, the space to understand issues that sometimes we haven't had to. Uh, sometimes we're not comfortable discussing, but sometimes you need to be able to work with trusting individuals who can help you to see what's in front of your nerves and to build what I call systems of healing. Um, So that you can not just become educated yourselves, but provide education to those who be in your space and also to provide greater access for the attainment of whatever goals you have as an organization and the goals of the individuals in your space.
0: Dr. Ty, can you explain something that may be foundational, uh, maybe to this conversation? But why is or how is sport and social issues, how are they related and and why do we find ourselves talking about them both in the same conversations?
2: Yeah. So it's interesting. There's a a term in communications called homophily, which is basically a common field of interest. Right. And uh, there are very few things that really transcend all barriers, right? Uh, for some, it it can be music, right? Um, you know, or, or when I go into uh, to uh, South Africa, for example, I don't speak Kosa, right? But if I pick up a soccer ball and I juggle it, uh, and I and I I do a little trick and I knock it to a young kid in a neighborhood, instantly I've created homophily with him. I've created a common field of interest. If I mention a name like Benny McCarthy in that particular city, or if I go to um, Mexico, Missouri, and I mention the name Tyron Lu, like there's a resonance, there's relationship, there are memories that come up for people when you mention certain things or when you have certain uh, 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 collateral in common, right? Uh, and so uh, so sport is that, right? Sport is a common field of interest. It's a space where you get people from all different backgrounds, all different social classes, races, genders, etc., who come together and participate and often cheer for uh, a common team, which is actually what I think has made this particular season in our world very pronounced let's remember that you know when the world watched the officers with on their knee uh, uh, with their knee on george floyd's neck this was at a time when nobody was cheering for the lakers when there was no distraction of the super bowl and people of different backgrounds were cheering for the same team all of a sudden now you have a very uh, isolated group of people in our community who are seeing without the, the, the lubricant, if you will, of sport, something very uh, overt and, and without the distraction of, again, things like sport that bring us together. And so I think we have to remember the power of sport in that context. And I think we also have to remember that sport, even as it's, it, it brings people together, it can sometimes shroud or hide the disconnects and tensions that exist even within people who for a moment cheer for the same team or pursue the same cause. So it's a beautiful thing, but it also can be a bit of a distraction if we're not willing to deal with the issues that lie right beyond below the surface of our jerseys and our common cheers for the same team on a sports field, but yet we walk off it or even when we're on it. And there are certain realities that undermine or impact how athletes and leadership of athletes is is played out. I'll give you a quick example, and then we can, you know, I, I want to make sure I can open up to whatever other questions you have. But let's think about how particular athletes are described. When you think about how quarterbacks, for example, are described, rather be, you know, he's a he, he's a like an offensive coordinator on the field, right? And they describe typically a white quarterback that way. But when you describe someone who is uh, has athletic ability to use his feet. Uh, as well as his mind, but there's a, there's a different narrative around who plays certain positions. And so, again, sport has never been disconnected from social issues, but sport has a way of sometimes uh, uh, complicating or hiding those issues. And I believe we're at a time now where we've had to sit and ask, what is really going on? Without the, uh, the distraction of sport, but now we have to look at sport even for more critical lands within the larger context of what's happening in our world in our country.
1: I think that I've heard some common themes just in the brief time that we've already been talking. Um, you mentioned, you know, having a trusted individual to sit down with and have those conversations. Um, you talked about having those things in common that are, you know, kind of uh, cross cultural. Burial, barriers instantly like you were talking about soccer and sport it has a way of doing that um, and so how do you let me preface this by saying that I think most people would agree that the average person you know from culture to co- culture and person to person we have way more in common than we do differences whether it's political beliefs religious beliefs etc but the common human experience I think most people would agree, is very much more similar than it is different, all things you know, being considered. But how is it that we have these differences? How do we have those hard conversations while not forgetting all of those things that we do have in common? Because those are the things that we, like you said, sport. We can use that to find the camaraderie without even knowing a person. But if we're cheering for the same team, we have something in common. So that can then build the relationship to potentially, you know, something deeper in having those hard conversations. So how, while we're in the midst of the hard conversations like we are right now in society, how do we not lose the common things that bring humanity together while having the conversation?
2: Yeah, great question. So I think it's important to, uh, there's a couple of things that are important. One, at least for me and my work, you know, I start from uh, a position of, uh, that's grounded also in my faith, but uh, reality for me and, and my understanding of, of life, that there is one race, the human race, right? That I, I believe that from creation, like, you know, there was Adam and Eve. Like, I believe that. But then when I look at my world and the existence and the disconnects and the disparities that I see today, I understand that there have been systematic realities that have created what I see today. So I start from a place of understanding that there was, there was unity. But the disunity that we see and the disparities that we see are not because some people are just, quote unquote, lazy or haven't worked hard and others have. That there have been systematic realities that impact the opportunities that people have. And so um, to your question around the, 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 the hard conversations and the like, many people have never really had those hard conversations. Uh, you know, as someone who was, uh, you know, my, my initial training is in education. So I taught middle school, high school English and, uh, you know, I, I continue to teach teachers and the like. I understand, like for many of our students, they are blown away when they begin to learn about some of the realities that have taken place just in this country alone. You know, things like uh, redlining and blockbusting where redlining impacted the housing values that exist today um, and disparities that you may see where black families were not allowed to fully participate in the housing market. And these things were were, were enacted by federal policies, right? So uh, I think, you know, when we talk about um, the, the, the starting place of unity and understanding that, yes, there were commonalities, but then being willing to open our eyes to the disproportionalities and not just base it on the narratives of meritocracy. Well, I just pulled myself up my, my bootstraps and someone else didn't. No, it's so much more than that. And so for me, I, I, I think that also goes back to my own story, right, where I recognize, listen, I mean, my mom was a 19 year old freshman when she get, when she was pregnant with me and nearly had an abortion. And, you know, I was born and raised in Bermuda. I I have a PhD now. I'm doing, so I think some significant things. But even for me, I never look back at my brothers and sisters who may not necessarily have taken the exact same path as me and think, well, what's wrong with you? You know, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps and you didn't. No, there were systems and realities and opportunities, which goes back to access, that have allowed me to be where I am today. And I said, I think we have to have those honest conversations. Many people are not willing to have those honest conversations. Also, many people have never really been able to understand or study or or, or consider what are key definitions as relates to this topic. So, for example, in the work that I do with my students, we define racism as race prejudice plus social and institutional power. Right. So we understand that all of us have prejudices from various backgrounds, but how our prejudices are supported uh, by institutions and structures is very different. Right. And so, you know, you know, when we talk about even having conversations around race, most people are not really comfortable having those conversations. Uh, and I think it's important for our leaders to be able to have those conversations, especially because of the high stakes that exist when they say the wrong thing. And also, I mean, I, I operate from the reality that I believe that there are many well-meaning people of various backgrounds, including my white brothers and sisters who want to be a part of Solutions. But I've never had these conversations, some because they didn't want to, others because they have had, haven't had access. And so I try to operate from an asset-based lens, which says, I believe that people want to do better. If you really do want to do better, then these are some things that you may need to know, and it will actually make you more compassionate towards what you see and even what you haven't been able to see. So you're right, Mac. You know, Yes, it's about trust. It's about understanding that we have things in common. But it's also about looking at the disparities and saying, how is it? That we see disproportionate representation, for example, of, of people, uh, particular uh, people of color in the penal system or, you know, the, 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 in, in, in special education uh, or in ownership or in leadership positions or in sport and coaching positions where you have the majority or, 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 or large numbers of, of black and brown bodies on the court or on the field. But in the administrative offices, in the ownership structures, you don't see them. Those are things that we have to be willing to ask why. And it's not about meritocracy. It's about system structures, relationships, and even the reality that um, you know, you know, you know. There's a historical narrative that has marginalized black people in this country that people don't want to talk about. I have to always mention that before black people could earn property, for example, we had to stop being property. And students in my class for example, they don't understand that until we play a Monopoly game and we play it with a staggered start. And I have two groups. I have a group of students that start, they're going around the Monopoly board, they're buying up property and they're having a great time. And then I bring in another group over after a little bit of time who come and they get to take all the property of the people who were initially playing. And you should see the body language of the four students who are now jockeying for a position. And I let these teams, uh, these two groups of, of, of players play for a while and they're buying up everything so that only maybe what's left is like Baltic Avenue or just like some low value property that's left. And then finally, I bring in two more uh, uh, players who come into the game when most of the property is gone. And you'll be amazed, Mac, at the body language. You'll be amazed at the things that they say as they continue to land on the property that is already earned, that now has hotels and houses on it. And they begin to say stuff like, you know what? I'm tired of landing on your property. I would just rather be in jail. And invariably, the person that wins the game is usually the person who has come in and got in the second group that, come, that came in and took the property of the previous group. Never does the group from group three ever win. And I begin to ask the students to unpack, obviously, what this means and how symbolically it is re- representative of what's happened in this country and how it has played out, not just individually, but institutionally. Let me, let me me. I, I know I've been talking for a while, so I don't want to talk too much longer, but I, let me just add this last piece. I then say to the students, I write their names up on the board and I, I list who, you know, their order of uh, uh, of how they've played made it out in the game, one through six. And I say, now imagine this. Imagine if now, twenty years from now, I uh, I, I, I give you a, no, I said imagine this. Imagine if now your your final grade in this class is based on where you rank in this game. And all of a sudden, the body language changes. And I say, now let me go a step further. What if I, twenty years from now, allow your grade in this class based on this assignment that was rigged to be the starting place of your child in my class 20 years from now. And I erased the story of how I disproportionately uh, uh, gave you access. I didn't tell them that I kept you out of the game until the last round. And all of a sudden, some of them, it finally clicks where they recognize, wow, I guess maybe it is something to this thing called systematic oppression, right? And so I think it's important for us to, again, be willing to really wrestle with the complexities of notions like liberty and justice for all, but that didn't include all. I think it's important to understand that, yes, we started out as one race, but the division that we see is not just because people haven't worked hard. There are systems and structures that we have to be willing to look at because we do participate in them.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Sorenex Exercise Equipment. Since 1980, Sorenex has been a family-owned business responsible for legendary innovations and training solutions that have changed the face of strength training. Today, Soranex is the most sought-after strength brand for professional teams, colleges, high schools, and military units. During this process of growth, our clients have become an extended family to us, part of our brotherhood, our culture. We want to thank you, our customers, friends, and family for being the foundation on which Soranex is built. We promise to do our best to continue to serve you with the best strength training equipment and service in the industry. Dr. Ty, I want you to talk about the grant that you received from the NCAA. So you received funding from the NCAA to study uh, black male athletes. Um, That was the beginning part of your research. Can you talk about what you found and what the athletes experiences were and what they said and what you think they are saying, saying today about where things are and where we're going.
2: Sure, yeah, um, so, you know, in, in, so it's interesting. You know, again, Columbia, Missouri has been uh, a unique space for me to really think about these issues. Um, you know, we know that Michael Brown uh, tragically lost his life in this state, uh, and so for me, you know, as a professor in this space uh, and doing work uh, uh, with our athletes, you know, I began to ask questions about what did this mean for the young people that would be coming on our campus. Understanding what had taken place not too far away, and so uh, we had the privilege. I had the privilege of interviewing over fifty uh, black male student athletes, leading into um, you know a, a very unique and and, and powerful and, and and critical time on our campus. Uh, one that you know I'm sure any person who's listening to this broadcast heard about. Uh, one that I, I know was seen very differently depending on who you talk to. But I think it's vital uh, that we understand the, the realities that these young people face. As they uh, are nurtured in a village in a neighborhood, and while they may show up on a court or in your, in your department, they don't leave those black families uh, as much as uh, our campuses seek to try to keep them in a bubble. And so, what we learned was that these young people on our campuses—you know—I mean, they—they—they they, they have not—they're they, not immune from the family complexities. Um, that, uh, you know, that they, have, they don't leave those family complexities that, 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 they, that they're navigating outside of, of the university space. You know, many of them talked about, you know, the realities of, of receiving phone calls from family members and seeking to navigate the pressure uh, of, of being not just a, a student athlete, but also the pressure of, 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 of seeking to do what you could to actually take the village to the next level, that they were carrying the hopes and dreams of of many people in their families, and also some of them even helping helping out financially with their families, right? And so, you know, this is narrative that like student athletes are just you know got all this money, and you know they should just be so privileged to play. You know, even you know for some people, the, the value of a college degree it, it varies based on uh, you know your background, based on you know your finances, based on your your history. Uh, you know the major that you're selecting. So for some of these young people, you know they're not even getting a chance. You know I'm not even necessarily speaking just to the study now, but they're not getting a chance to even study what they want to study. And so they're getting a degree and they're playing sport, um, but they're not necessarily feeling like they're moving towards the goals that uh, that perhaps you know you know we just assume that they have, which is make it just to make it to the league. Is there's there's this there's this tension between the the hopes of making it to the league and carrying the family. And the reality of their day-to-day grind of trying to navigate these these prod- predominantly white campuses uh, while also navigating who they are as Black people and as Black people who are part of a larger Black family that sometimes many of the folks in our athletic departments don't fully understand. And so I think that's a, 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 a an important takeaway from it. Um, you know, it was not just the, 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 the fact that they were connected to these families, which we get and I understand, but also the pressure that comes with that of seeking to make sure that you can... You know, attend to all the different responsibilities. Going to class, you know, training, trying to stay healthy, trying to make it on the field. And then I'll, use, I'll I'll share one more that was really poignant. You know, and it goes back I think to our earlier conversation. You know, some of them talked about the frustration of uh, of having fifty thousand people shout your name when you make a good play, but then they're afraid of you when you get on an elevator, or if you're dating, for example, their white girlfriend. I mean, their white daughter. Um, you know. This young man, as, as he's making a tackle, is thinking about the reality that his girlfriend's dad doesn't want to talk to him because he's black. So these, I mean, you know, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the helmets and the headsets. I think we need to really be thinking about what is going on underneath the helmets and headsets. The mental realities of trying to navigate uh, being hyper visible, uh, being being highly celebrated, but then being invisible and seen as a threat or to be someone to be feared when not. On the field. And so those are some of the things that really stand out to me. There are so much more. I mean, I literally sat down with 52 of these young men during the height of a critical time. I like to tell people that before Kaepernick took a knee, you know, Mizzou athletes stood. And so I think it's important, uh, that folks really look at what is going on, not just even here now, but across the nation. And what is it that really needs to be done to answer the tough questions that the realities of our time are asking us?
1: So I actually would like to follow that up by asking you, what can people do? So and in, in specifically, I'm referring to um, your earlier statement that in general, people want to do better. They want to have an understanding. They want to, you know, try to fix whatever Things That they can in, you know, whether it be on their team, their athletic department, their school. Um, So to our listeners who are coaches and administrators and even, you know, parents and things like that, who have some power to um, initiate those conversations, or at least even if they're not comfortable yet initiating those conversations, how can they go learn more about it. I know you have your YouTube video, Hope in Complex Times. So I'm hoping that you'll speak on that as well. But, you know, not everybody has the means to hire a professional consultant and, you know, that kind of thing. So where can you where can people start just to get the ball rolling on these hard conversations? Yeah.
2: You know, I, I think that people first of all really need to look in the mirror and ask themselves, are they willing to do the right thing for the right reason? Um, unfortunately, I've noticed that it seems that many people, many organizations, don't want to address student needs until they become demands. It's as if um, there's this fear that somehow to to actually re envision or to do things some 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 things a little bit differently would undermine the entire enterprise. And I would like to suggest that when you treat people right. That if you actually attend to their needs, you everybody would benefit, right? Um, so I think, first of all, I think there's some hard questions and simple questions that we need to ask of ourselves. You know, um, you know, I, I found it very interesting. You know, even you know things that I've seen done across the nation that seem like it's it's PR, it's optics, it's you know, parading to say, well, we 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 took our athletes to do this, or we you know we got them to do that. And then, but I'll ask a simple question like. You know, is the academic All American board still the same as it was five years ago? Did, have you attended to that yet, or or will it take some type of protest from the students where you get embarrassed for you to then attend to that? Like, like I think there's some really simple and important just just eye questions that leaders need to ask themselves, right? Uh, I, I, you know, do do we do we have the right people around us to help us to see what's really in front of our noses. Um, I also think that we need to begin to study and understand that there are certain terms that we use that um, that are far more loaded than we would like to recognize. With all due respect, I hear a lot of coaches, for example, talk about their faith. And they'll mention how, well, you know, I, listen, I, I, you know, I, I I love you guys. I'll treat you like a son, which a lot, a lot of folks say. But then when they're not on the squad or the young man's not playing well, or young lady's not playing well, all of a sudden now, they don't treat them how I would treat my son. Right. Or they'll mention their faith as if their faith has not been undergirded at times by whiteness. Right. The reality that, you know, there are narratives around uh, uh, how, uh, uh, for example, Christianity um, has. And I'm a Christian. I don't have a problem saying that. But I've experienced some realities in the Christian church where we are not even comfortable in that space talking about race and racism. And so people use terms like, well, I'm, I'm a man of faith. And they'll use it as if that absorbs them from racism, as if that absorbs them from looking at their whiteness and, and how they operationalize it and weaponize it against young people of color, right? So I think it's some real honest conversations that need to be had with people who can ask them seriously with training, hey, listen... This is actually the definition. Have you considered such and such, right? So um, the video that I, that you mentioned talks about uh, 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 the study, and it also reveals uh, uh, some of the, the key findings, the power of expectations, positive or negative, right? Uh, the power of exposure, positive or negative. And I talk about that as it relates to athlete opportunities. But I would like to suggest in this podcast, that exposure is something I believe our leaders and administrators need to engage in. And I'm not talking about exposure as it relates to embarrassment. I'm actually talking about exposure to learning so that when the cameras show up, you don't have to be afraid because you've done the requisite behind-the-scenes work, not just the research, which I think is important, and I do research, but i like to suggest that you do what I call me-search, where you begin to look in the mirror and begin to ask significant questions about who you are. About where you were raised, about how the beginnings, your your the room of your of your experiences have impacted how you engage with others, and that's something I've had to do, and I continue to do, which is why I started with my story, and I always do at the beginning of this conversation about being in the room of 19 year old freshman, about nearly being aborted, about being raised in a small country like Bermuda, and then now being back in Missouri as it relates to this work in my father's state. Like those things are relevant. They also connect to the fact that I had an amazing dad who raised me in Bermuda, who is a sport administrator, who is a he, he, former uh, president of the Bermuda, Bermuda Olympic Association. And he works for the uh, I, 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 I mean, former president of Bermuda Track and Field Association. And he currently uh, has worked for the Bermuda Olympic Association. So it's funny now I'm engaging, you know, in, in, in sport leadership, and that's all connected to my story. And so I think mm-hmm. we need leaders who begin to look at their stories, begin to look at where they started from. Not from a place of fear or even for someone looking to try to expose you in a negative way, but from a place of saying, hey, listen, we all start somewhere and we're engaged in a space of sport that has the opportunity to do some powerful things. But we can also do great damage if we're not willing to ask honest questions and to learn about things that for some of us we've never had to see. And in fact, some of our history books have ensured that we won't see it because it has furthered the agenda of a country that, frankly, has always been complex. And Dr. King, you know, talked about this and we talk about it. To, we're back. We have. We never left, but I think and we talked about this, I think, before the show. But the reality is this work is going to require our white brothers and sisters to engage in ways they never have before. That was that was what King was saying. It's not just about black folks doing the work. In fact, it's white folks who are going to need to have some honest conversations and to be able to use their privilege to challenge um, it's the systems that, that, have, that have prevailed.
0: We're all going to have to do it together, Dr. Ty. It's been a pleasure having you on this show. I just want to remind our listeners that on YouTube, you can find Dr. Ty's video, Hope in Complex Times, Race and Diversity in Sport. Hope in Complex Times. So we're here to spread the message of hope in education, um, in sport, it is relevant. It is powerful. Dr. Ty, you are a dynamic speaker. I hope people look you up and try to have more conversations with you. I hope that we can get you in front of more leaders in sport. I hope that the athletes that you have been in touch with, in contact with, will hear your voice and be reminded of the goodness of our human abilities. So, where can our listeners find you on social media or wherever else you would like?
2: Absolutely. I can be found uh, at, at Dr. Ty Douglas uh, on uh, Instagram and on Twitter. That's D Y T Y D R T Y D O U G L A S. And also my website, uh, drtydouglas.com, uh, drtydouglas.com. And I'll be happy to uh, connect with anyone who is interested in growing. I know there are many people out. Uh, Dr. P.I., thank you. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you for having me. Uh, I would just want to close by saying again, um, and I want to reiterate what you mentioned, that, that hope piece. I believe there are many people who are willing now to have some honest conversations, and I'm excited to be a part of it. I remain hopeful. I've seen some powerful things that have happened through sport, including athletes of various backgrounds beginning to see racism as the enemy on the other side of the proverbial ball. So this is a great time to do this work. We don't have to be afraid. And there are many of us who've been prepared to do this work long before the cameras came. So I feel free to reach out and I'll support and assist any way I can.
0: Thank you very much. You have a good night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of beyond sets and reps, where we provide the performance edge. This podcast has been brought to you by our sponsor, Soranex exercise equipment. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can find show notes and more at beyondsetsandreps.com. That's B-E-Y-O-N-D-S-E-T-S-A-N-D-R-E-P-S.com.